This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. From the Diary of Mircha Eliade, December 13, 1945. Robert Eisler was perfectly happy to reconstruct what, in his opinion, represented the physical portrait of Jesus. A man, a little man, like Eisler's Jesus, this Jewish scholars can accept in order to calmly reject Christianity, the religion created by an ordinary human being. This week on the podcast, we will be bringing together two subjects that we treated in the last two episodes. The first is Eisler's method of dream analysis. In the last episode, we saw Eisler analyze his own dream of digging up a classical Greek poem in the desert. In this episode, he will take on someone else's dream, or vision, technically. The second subject we will revisit is Eisler's reconstruction of Flavius Josephus' original physical description of Jesus. We talked about it in episode 5, but if you were listening carefully, you noticed that I never actually gave you the description itself. Well, the wait is over. I'm Brian Collins, and this is A Very Square Peg, a podcast about Robert Eisler. This is episode number 7, The Christ Vision. First, I think I need to refresh your memory about Eisler's ill-fated debut in the world of international diplomacy and the whole Slavonic Josephus thing because that really sets the stage for what comes next. In 1924, Eisler got the attention of an English classicist named Gilbert Murray, who liked the cut of Eisler's jib and thought that he should represent Austria on the newly formed Institute of Intellectual Cooperation in Paris. Eisler was happy to do this, and he went to Paris to take the job. Trouble was, he did not ask his government back home in Austria whether he could do it, and they got pretty angry and disowned him. This was the point at which Gershom Sholem and Walter Benjamin visited him, and Sholem later wrote that he was completely deluded and didn't know what was going on, which I would take with a grain of salt. What he was doing, since he couldn't really do his job that he came there for, was lecturing about the Slavonic Josephus tradition. What is the Slavonic Josephus tradition? This is complicated, but I'll try to make it real simple. Flavius Josephus was a first century Roman Jewish historian who actually mentions Jesus and John the Baptist in his writings. This was exciting for Christians because he's the first non-Christian author to do this, more or less. But all of the European manuscripts of Josephus' writings were heavily edited by Christians to make him sound like he said things about Jesus he didn't, that he was the Messiah, that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, that Pilate did it because he was ordered to do so by the Jews. In the 19th century, some Western scholars discovered a new set of Josephus manuscripts in Russia that seemed to come from a different source and might not have been subject to the same distortions that all the other Josephus manuscripts were. Eisler was really excited by this, and he started working with the manuscripts to reconstruct the real story of Jesus as a political rebel who was ordered to be crucified by the Romans, not the Jews, and he also even finds, in the form of a kind of a mugshot in writing, a physical description of Jesus as a very Semitic-sounding man. Eisler's description of Jesus becomes pretty famous because as he's lecturing about it, the wire services are picking it up and they're reprinting it in newspapers all over the world. 
It's also being cited by a few other scholars, especially a guy named G.R.S. Mead, who cites it in an article that comes out in 1929, which will be important later on. This is the physical description of Jesus that Eisler claims to have uncovered in the Slavonic Josephus manuscripts. He had simple appearance, mature age, dark skin, short growth, three cubits tall and hunchbacked, with a long face, a long nose, eyebrows meeting above the nose so that spectators could take fright, with scanty hair but having a line in the middle of the head after the fashion of the Nazarians, and with an undeveloped beard. Now think about it. This would be a holy grail if it were true. A physical description of Jesus. Eisler thought he had that. Eisler thought that he had a Roman mugshot in writing, which was meant to be accurate so that the authorities knew they had the right guy when he arrived. So Eisler is really happy to have uncovered what he thinks is historical truth underneath centuries of religious distortion. But he also makes quite a lot of Christians angry. So what was it about this description that was making everybody so upset? I asked Marcia Hewitt, who is a practicing psychoanalyst and also a scholar of religion at the Toronto School of Theology. She's written quite a bit about anti-Semitism. Well, they, you know, maybe they don't like a Jew telling them that Jesus is a Jew. And there's the kind of anti-Semitic sort of thread to that too, right? Where Jesus is, is an Aryan type, like he's got fine chiseled features and light hair and blue eyes and... You see these exhibits sometimes in Jewish museums, too, on, when they're talking about the history of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, sort of like the Jew has always got a beard and a big nose and a hunched back. And, you know, there's this uh, deformed Jewish face on a spider's body and the hairy tentacles are um, penetrating the globe and blood is coming out of it, right? Or, you know, the, the blood libel. The blood libel usually involves, you know, an image of a prepubescent kind of Christian boy who's uh, on a kind of a pedestal and he's surrounded by these, you know, lascivious, hunchback, hook-nosed, bearded Jews with knives and there's a, a bull and they're all piercing his body at the same time. Anti-Semitism was one thing and Eisler was very used to that. But the response he got in 1926 from a guy named Alfred Glover was of a different kind. It starts out as a pretty straightforward Christian critique of Eisler's work and then morphs into something much stranger. My dear sir, I have perused the subject of the attached clipping and think that I should write and say that I am convinced of your real earnestness and absolute sincerity as a scholar truthfully translating ancient script whose genuine character you believe. However this might be, the publication of a caricature of Jesus with the inference that it was owing to his conspiracy to overthrow the rule of the Romans that he lost his life is very shameful to the Christian faith. In the days when Jesus was living the life of a human being on earth, it was customary for the inhabitants of the celestial world to visit the earth and speak to the children of mankind, such, for instance, the angels who spoke to the shepherds at the time of the birth of Jesus. It might be an amazing statement to make. But I can say that at that time I also visited the earth and saw Jesus as the man and his personal appearance was as unlike that described in the attached clipping as it would be possible to be. He was a very handsome man who bore himself very upright. He was clean-shaven with tender sweet lips, a delicately chiseled nose, while his face was round through bearing the slight oval shape of the patrician he looked to be. The face was even proud in its quiet celestial beauty, whose striking charms were sweetened by the soft sweet tender beauty of his clear lovely eyes. His brow was neither too high nor too broad, softened as it was by the clinging abundance of his waving hair, and he was neither too tall nor too short. He was, in every way, a very pleasant man. Glover then goes on to explain that he himself was a celestial being who has been on earth for centuries, awaiting God's approval to permanently return to heaven, but that he does still visit there and regularly sees Jesus, who is one of the chief magicians of heaven. He also warns Eisler about the dire consequences for his soul if he continues to publish libel against Jesus. Unless Alfred Glover was in fact some kind of a rebellious angel being forced to live on earth in human form to atone for his crimes against God, then he was delusional. As far as I know, Eisler never wrote back to Glover. Now the letter that Robert Whitehead wrote from London on New Year's Eve 1929 is different. This one Eisler took seriously, and he took it seriously enough that he wanted to analyze it as a Jesus vision. The Whitehead-Eisler correspondence is going to be the focus of this episode. We've already seen how Eisler got himself in trouble with this description of Jesus, 
but it also occasioned his first and only attempt to perform psychoanalysis on another person, which is really a fascinating story. We'll start off with the first letter that Whitehead wrote Eisler, dated December 31st, 1929. I've just been reading your article on the paraclete problem in the January Quest. I found it very interesting and wish I were not so tired so that I might have been able to better grasp the whole of the argument. But still, I was happy that it would be less grueling days for businessmen than the last day of the year, and I sent back quietly pondering certain matters referred to in your article. I would like to ask you if it is a frequent occurrence that men see the Christ, and are there occasions known when the visions are free from religiosity and at the same time full of life and power? I ask these questions because on November 25 last it was given to me to see the Christ in experience very surprising for several reasons. One, that I was not thinking about him, and two... I am no churchman and not a Jesus worshipper, much as I admire him, and why he should visit me I could not tell. Third, I became conscious first of someone, as it were close by, wanting to see me. I was aware of movement. The person was about to withdraw when I made a big effort, born of courtesy, I think, and nothing else. And to my astonishment, the Christ blazed before me. I say blazed, for indeed it was an astounding sight. I gazed and gazed. I had no sense of worship. I was keenly observant. No picture of the Christ was ever like that. It gave me many new ideas, particularly of life, living, raised to the nth power. The Christ took not the slightest notice of me. Then he retired through a long series of rooms with the glass partitions until he disappeared as something within me. Doubtless some subconscious calculating part of me said, Fourteen. I am asking you these two questions in a sort of natural attempt, as I think, to correlate my personal experience with other human experience. Will you pardon my presumption in thus intruding upon you? If the questions are worthy, please answer them. If they are trifling, then of your goodness, forget them. I'm going to jump in here real quick and try to clear up a few things. The paraclete problem refers to the identity of something that in John's gospel is referred to as a paraclete that Jesus says will come after him. Now, for most Christians, the paraclete refers to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But for Muslims, it referred to the prophet Muhammad. Eisler thought that it referred early in Christian history to Simon Magus. Simon Magus appears in the Acts of the Apostles as a magician who they don't like. But people interested in Gnosticism thought that Simon Magus was maybe an early teacher of Gnostic traditions. This probably isn't true, but Eisler and the readers of the Quest were interested in this idea. But when we get to Eisler's response, we see that he is less interested in the paraclete and more interested in his description of Jesus. Now that's understandable because he's gotten a lot of mail about it and he seems to be lumping in Whitehead with these other people. So he jumps to the conclusion that what Whitehead must really be thinking about is G.R.S. Mead's quotation of his physical description of Jesus. Now, G.R.S. Mead's an interesting guy. He was once a member of the Theosophical Society and a high-ranking member. He was the personal secretary of Helena Blavatsky. She was the founder of the Theosophical Society, and the Theosophical Society was kind of a New Age movement popular in the late 19th century. Blavatsky thought that she got psychic messages from beings called the Mahatmas who lived in Tibet and were revealing to her the secret teachings of all the ages. After her death, Mead became skeptical of all of this, and the straw that broke the camel's back was when Blavatsky's heir, Annie Besant, decided to reinstate the membership of a guy named C.W. Ledbetter. Ledbetter had been forced to resign earlier when he admitted that, as a teacher, he had advised pubescent boys to masturbate. Now, this doesn't sound all that sinister. It sounds more like some frank sex education, but it was too much for the Victorian theosophist to take, and they got him out of there. When he was let back in, G.R.S. Mead left the organization along with some other English theosophists to start the Quest Society and the Quest Journal to publish serious scholarship on Western esotericism, which means Rosicrucianism and Gnosticism. It was in this Gnostic journal, the Quest, that Whitehead came across Eisler's article. Here is what Eisler wrote back to Whitehead on January 5th, 1930. Dear Mr. Whitehead, as you know from Mr. Mead's article, A New Quest of the Historical Jesus, in one of the last numbers of the quest, my book on Jesus, which you can order for two-thirds of the net price by quoting this letter, contains the reconstruction of the description of Jesus, as it was taken down by the Roman authorities who arrested him. 
I wonder whether you saw anything like this description, and if it is this fact which prompted your writing me about your experience. If so, did you know this description through the quotation of Mr. Mead's writing? It strikes me that your letter twice uses the word blaze in connection with your vision, and that Mr. Mead has used this word on page 33, line 8, from below in saying, quote, Jesus, finally blazing forth in the sublimest perfection of physical beauty as God on earth, end quote. According to the principles of modern psychoanalysis, this seems to betray the cause and subconscious motive of your vision. A very intensive daydream, I should say, due a. to a particular congenital disposition to strong visualization, and b. to the excessive fatigue from which you suffered at the time. This refers, of course, to the 30th of December, while the vision occurred on November the 25th. Still, you were probably very tired all through the last weeks of last year. You were probably subconsciously offended at the coldly objective description of Jesus reproduced by Mr. Mead on page 34. A powerful wish to see Jesus' glorified self with your own eyes developed in your subconscious mind. It would be interesting to know when you read Mr. Mead's paper, if you did read it, or when you heard of it. For the time seems long from October 1st until November 25th for a psychic incubation. Then you had your vision. As St. Paul had his on the way to Damascus, probably prompted by qualms of conscience, whether he whose disciples saw was persecuting were not, after all, the true Messiah. These doubts leading to a powerful desire to see the unknown man himself and to be able to judge with his own eyes whether he was the chosen one of God or an impostor. According to the rules of psychoanalytic interpretation, which apply to visions and daydreams, as well as to ordinary nocturnal dreams. I should take your sentence, quote, The Christ took not the slightest notice of me, end quote, and the corresponding feature of the vision to be the counterpart to your statement, quote, I am no churchman and not a Jesus worshiper, and why he should visit me I could not tell, end quote. These are thoughts which were present in your subconscious mind when the vision was forming itself. They were the resistance which your imaginative powers had to overcome, the part of yourself which my forefathers would have called Yesarah, the evil impulse, and your forefathers Satan, or the devil. The one would say to the other part, if you were a religious-minded person and a Jesus worshipper, you could see him. But why should such a favor be granted to a secularist or indifferent or doubting or unbelieving person? This objection was overcome by your creative imagination through the visions taking the shape of Jesus taking no notice of you because you would not worship him. This is how I should explain your, notwithstanding any possible explanation, highly interesting experience. As to your question, whether such visions are frequent, I think that they are rare. Still, I have got two letters from America, from unknown female correspondents, violently protesting against my reconstruction of Flavius Josephus' description of Jesus, as it was reproduced by the New York Times in a telegram about my first lecture on the subject before the Paris Academy. I still possess these letters. To both ladies, Jesus had appeared in radiant beauty in order to enable them to deny what they called my slandering him. This is all I can tell you. I hope you are satisfied with my explanation. Will you allow me to quote your letter if I should write a paper on modern visions in a psychoanalytic paper, Imago, which is only read in Austria and Germany, leaving out your name and address if you desire it? You can use my letter as you like. It is what I would say in public about such a case. Very sincerely yours, Robert Eisler. There's also a postscript at the end of the letter where Eisler responds to Whitehead's recollection of hearing the number 14 in his mind. Eisler writes, It strikes me that the number 14 is probably derived from a cryptic mnemonic reminiscence of 1 Corinthians 15. Quote, After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all of me also. End quote. James and 12 apostles equals 13. You are the 14th. Robert Eisler was not a trained psychoanalyst. But Marcia Hewitt is, so I asked her what kind of questions she would ask about Whitehead's vision. I mean, his images or his fantasies about Jesus, these are dreams. If we think about them all as dreams, what is the emotional work that maybe Whitehead is doing? What is he able to find out about himself in the dream? 
which is, you know, full of symbolism and cultural narrativization and mythology and so on. Shortly after he got Eisler's first letter, Whitehead wrote back. It was a long response written in two sessions on the 9th and the 12th of January. In it, he explains who he is, what he's interested in, and gives a much more detailed description of his vision of the Christ. I am astounded at the generous response you have made to my letter. The swift, keen analysis, the deep thought, the profound learning so freely used for my service fill one with gratitude, and I thank you very sincerely. I would gladly give my consent to your use of the incident in your proposed article for Imago if I felt you were provided with the whole of the data necessary for that purpose. I follow quite well the course of your argument, but there is error in the conclusion because there has been only a partial statement of the case. For instance, you do not know me and my mode of thought and action. That would not matter if these three, myself, my thought, and my action, were those usually expected. But in the degree in which these depart from the normal, you not being made aware of that variation, there is a factor of error in the result. You find the subject one of interest. I will try, therefore, to put you in the possession of all necessary facts. When you have got these, do with them what you will, except giving my name to the public, for I have little love of publicity. At the same time, you may look to me for affirmation or confirmation of my statement and for the answering of any reasonable inquiry by persons who ask not out of idle curiosity. If you wish to give me a name, then call me Beta. It is a name I've used for twenty years for occasional writing, but very few people, perhaps not even a dozen, know who Beta is. Now to the very difficult task of telling every necessary fact and omitting the unnecessary. One does not like to talk much of oneself, but as that is the subject of this letter, it must be done. I, Beta, am a small manufacturer in the city of London. I do not live to run my business, but I run my business to live, and that is because my great and ruling interest is outside of the small affairs of inventing, manufacturing, and marketing commodities. I have two overwhelming interests, men, not women, men and God. I belong to no religion, no political party, no particular school of thought, no club, no society of any kind. I'm a man most happily married, father of three sons, all doing a man's work in the world, one forming in New Zealand, one erecting a paper machine in Russia, one in business partnership with me. I have one daughter who has given to us a grandson, and she is most happily married. I think I may say a healthy, virile people. My business provides easily for all my needs, which are those of a quiet, living, middle-class man. I find much joy in my business because it brings me in contact with men. Some of these tell me of their griefs, their woes, their sorrows, some of their adventures in the religious world and the psychic world. I find men mightily hungry for God, just common men like myself, and, account for it as one may, I am able to help. So men come to me to my office to talk of God and even to make confessions. Men come to me. I do not seek them, and I do not think I have much to say. I have one remedy for all evils. I tell of the eternal presence. I say that as men look for it, their troubles, sins, disasters, impediments one by one fall away. As they grow in the power of cognition of that presence, they become healthy in body, mind, soul, and, though probably after much trouble, in a state also. For the psychics, I discourage phenomena hunting and seek to lead them to contemplation of that in which all phenomena arise, but treating them as adventitious, so in time they come to distinguish between the self-created and not self-created. For me, religion is bondage. Life in spirit is a freedom. Following the way of the spirit, one proceeds on two feet. One foot is called longing for light, and the other is named fighting for truth. As one proceeds, many incidents arise, tending to distract attention. New powers called psychic, though oftentimes the psyche is hard to find, arise. These incidents, these powers, are hindrances not to be sought after. Later on, the traveler finds that powers have accrued to him, come to him as his servants and slaves. He is now able to use him whilst formerly he would have become lost in the wilds of undisciplined imagination. To him, clairvoyance, clairaudience, vision, dreams, healing power are added to the strength which is sufficient to the need. Incidents are of frequent occurrence, but they are unsought and they are directly in the path. None brings praise or glory. These are sick of mind, body, and estate to be healed. There, our minds are to be made aware of the soul, souls to be awakened to the presence of the spirit, spirits to be made to realize their non-separateness, even the so-called dead come for assistance. I want to jump in here and say a little bit about what I'm getting out of Whitehead's letter. He seems to be well-versed in the New Age thought of his day, and a lot of that was based on what people were finding out about yoga. There were a few books being written about yoga in the West. There were books being brought out of India. And he's clearly talking about here something that yogis call siddhis, which are powers associated with advanced stages 
of yogic practice, but which are also seen as distractions from the true purpose of yoga to achieve samadhi or awakening. Now, that wasn't the case for all forms of yoga, but this seems to be the version of yoga that Whitehead is adopting. There's more evidence for this in Whitehead's third letter. We're not going to be able to get to this part of it, but I'll just tell you that he says, as regards the use of a pseudonym, I know not what it may be the symptom of, unless it be shyness, fear, or a sound practical design to obtain a hearing in several camps. Thus, under this name, I wrote for theosophists, the Salvation Army, for Hindus, and for followers of the New Thought. And all the time, at any moment, the great cloud of unknowing, which is perpetually hovering overhead, may close in, in the wayfarer stand bleak and chill and feeling utterly forsaken. How to act, then, he will learn when he is ready for the knowledge. But the cloud may lift, quote, at any hour when ye think not, end quote. Forms may appear, but the greatest wonder of all is the rising of the sun righteousness, an event as real as any earthly dawn, and infinitely more pregnant with effect. These things I have seen, again to the vision of Christ. Such incidences I have described, the healing of the sick of various kinds, are excessively fatiguing. The fatigue is not felt at the time, but afterwards. Virtue has gone out of one. To make recovery, I retire early to a hot bath containing common salt and common soda. This is very soothing. In this I lie for half an hour to an hour, the inward and external heat's approximate. The body becomes oblivious of environment, and the mind and soul proceed to worship. If the mind is more strongly operated there, there will be a succession of forms. If the soul, then at its best there, will be a great light. If the consciousness be marginal between that which is high in mind and high in soul, there may arise, as I think was the case in this instance, the glorious vision of Christ. But it is not either the mind or soul which produces the vision, as I think, and in this I apparently differ from you, if I understand your psychoanalysis all right. The mind and soul attuned, as I have described them, have become suited to the high visions. As a photographic plate can only photograph that which is presented to it and light, so it is with this form of intellect. I have not kept a copy of my letter to you, but I feel sure I told you that I first became aware of someone just outside of me, as it were in an anteroom, wishing to communicate with me. I did not know who it was, but instantly willed his admission. To my unbounded astonishment, the Christ appeared literally blazing forth. This has nothing to do with Mr. Mead's use of the word. It was brilliant coloring, such as on the physical plane could only be produced in a very dark room by a powerful kinema. Moreover, it was living, in the sense that it had the movement of the eye. I say the eye because the figure standing to the left was in profile, the head uplifted, the gaze directed, shall I say, east-northeast. I was a small dark creature, seated like an urchin in the middle seat at the front row of the movies, gazing open-mouthed, missing nothing and greatly wandering. I tried to see what the Christ was looking at, but could see nothing. The figure was large, apparently ten or twelve feet high, the head most fully, accurately, vividly shown, the body in a robe of blue. Here I am not quite sure. No, at this stage it was blue. The figure disappeared gradually about the knees, as in an impressionist drawing. I remember nothing of the arms or hands, yet if they were absent, I did not notice the absence. At this stage, everything was concentrated in the face. Not everything, of course, but the major effect. I thought I had never seen any human face so perfectly manly, fine, clear-cut features, strong as the master of master men, and infinitely greater, wise, abounding in joy, triumphant. But immediately I thought that I knew the word triumphant was inaccurate. I sought for another and chose accomplishing. Now the face. I shall disappoint you, I think. The eye very large, clear, expressive. The nose beautifully formed and straight and strong. The mouth and chin masterful. The hair very fair, not very long, and lighter than the eyebrows. The beard close cut and pointed, and I thought, though I could not make sure because the face was just slightly turned away, slightly forked. The color of the beard was dark with a little reddish stripe. The complexion somewhat dark and high colored. My attention was now directed to the body. The robe now appeared white and of a wooly nature. But through it, from back to front, were flashing great beams of light. It was extraordinary. One flash as broad as the palm of a man's hand, some forked, not exactly at right angles to the body, but all in the same plane of direction, not proceeding more than 18 inches from the body. Next, the robe dissolved. I could see the inside of the walls of the chest. The body became open to my gaze. There were no internal organs. Again, I looked to the head. The expression had become wooden. The life had gone out of it. Suddenly, the figure collapsed, and then I saw it formed again, again in a blue robe. Back to me, retreating swiftly through the glass partition chambers, growing less and less in perspective, in the far distance appearing, though I was not sure, to be joined by a small figure from the right-hand side, and helped by this figure, then disappearance and the utterance from what source I know not, of the number fourteen. It seems to me that someone had been counting the rooms just passed through. I do not know, but it was not I. One other thing I should add, and then I think I have included everything pertinent to the subject. 
On the morning of November 25, I walked in St. Paul's Cathedral and went around to see Holman Hunt's picture, The Light of the World. In my view, an uninspired picture. There I recalled one of my incidents of 15 months earlier. How a complete stranger accosted me in front of the picture, asking my opinion on it. How I used the occasion to speak of the eternal presence, and then I said, Let us sit a while and contemplate its title, The Light of the World. And after a time the man said, quote, I understand now. Christ is the light of the world, but here Christ has got the light in a lantern. End quote. I must cease now. I fear I have not been exactly helpful, but I have been exactly truthful. Again, accept my thanks for your goodness, and believe me. Sincerely, Robert Whitehead. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. On January 20th of 1930, Eisler sent Whitehead a reply. It was a six-page typed letter with a very detailed analysis of everything that Whitehead had told him so far. What follows is an edited version of that letter. Before giving you the explanation resulting from my analysis, I should like to recall to your memory the old adage that science has no heart. Much of what I have to say will seem unfeeling, unsympathetic, and hard. But it is not. You have honored me with your confidence. I cannot requite this honor but by being absolutely frank about my results. In printing them according to the kind permission you gave me, I will not even use your pseudonym. First, because I will not even indirectly identify you, and secondly, because a pseudonym is very much an alias, an alter ego, or split-off personality of a man, and should be respected as such. Has Beta anything to do with Venerable Beta, or what does it mean? The use of a pseudonym, even for the practical purposes for which they are mostly used, is a symptom in itself. I have often written things which might have and have given me trouble enough but I have never used and shall never use a pseudonym, and I have withdrawn an important article for which twenty pounds had been offered from the Times Literary Supplement because the editor, on principle, cannot allow contributors to sign their articles. This is a symptom of my own very egotistic mental constitution. My attention was immediately attracted by the statement on white paper about your experience of many visions. The detail of the note furnishes additional material together with the statement of page four, quote, my consciousness tends to dwell in the spirit, end quote. And with the beginning of the part written on the 12th about how you have achieved clairvoyance, clairaudience, vision, dream, you have methodically trained your imaginative power to a much greater strength than it has in ordinary people. The methods applied have been known to a number of people, and they are well known to me, although I do not apply them, because they would deviate me from the path of reasoning, which I am by my conscience bound to follow. This explains why a phenomenon which an ordinary person would have experienced in the less vivid form of a daydream came to you as an over-lucid, over-vivid, overpowering vision. The metaphor of the photographic plate is totally inadequate, and we cannot too carefully guard our reasoning from the lure of words and metaphors. But if you will have a metaphor, remember that a wireless receiver manipulated in a certain way disturbs your neighbors, because it becomes an emitting post. The mind is not a passive receiver, but active, even when it is receiving. You are free to believe that your vision is the result of an influence from outside your own self, but even as a philosopher cannot prove the objective existence of anything corresponding to an ordinary complex of phenomena found in his consciousness, it would be vain to attempt to assert that any outside cause, spiritual or otherwise, must be at the bottom of your or any other vision. This is exclusively a matter of belief, or faith, if you prefer this word. When I assign a paper to my students and one of them emails me about the word count, it means one of two things. Either they're the kind of student who doesn't want to write one more word than they have to, and they're probably going to find a lot of really long quotes to fill up space, or they're the kind of student who can't stay under the word count no matter what because they have so much to say. Clearly, Eisler was the second kind of student. Time and again, publishers and journal editors would warn him to stay under the word or page count they gave him. Sometimes he would pretend like he was going to do that, but then start sending in more pages when the production was already underway. 
if you've ever worked with a publisher, then you know that they hate that, and they hated it even more before the advent of computer technology. All that to say that this is a lengthy analysis of Whitehead's vision of the Christ, and I'm going to jump in a few times to make some observations and clarify some points in order to break it up a little bit. The first thing I'll say is that when you read Man into Wolf, it's clear that Eisler really likes psychological case studies. Whitehead's letter gives him his first opportunity to do a psychological case study of his own, and he really goes for it. We know that Eisler got other letters in which people described visions of Christ that contradict his own physical description called from the Josephus manuscripts, but he doesn't seem to have replied to any of those, and he certainly doesn't seem to have replied in the same way that he did to Whitehead. Now, this makes me think that he saw Whitehead as being neurotic, but in the sweet spot of having enough lucidity to undergo psychoanalysis. If you're not self-aware, then psychoanalysis won't work. So while Eisler might have made the same diagnosis of others, he saw Whitehead as someone that he could actually do the process with. So he starts off with a kind of establishment of an ethical position, declaring himself as a scientist who has to call it as he sees it and is not going to pull any punches, but still wants to soften the blow for Whitehead. And this is kind of a bedside manner here in the first paragraph. At this point, I think Eisler starts revealing more about himself than he actually means to. And he's having this discussion about pseudonyms and how he's not going to even use Whitehead's pseudonym. He says, basically, if anybody were going to use a pseudonym, it would be me because I get into so much trouble with the radical things that I write that upset people and get people angry at me. And I don't know what he's talking about with this New York Review of Books article, but I think it's probably right. These things happen all the time in Eisler's life and career. Then he goes on to say, I also know about these visualization techniques that you are using, because Eisler, remember, studied religion a lot. But he says, I don't use them because that would not be a rational thing to do, and that would sort of compromise his rationality. So he starts to make these protestations that he knows as much as Whitehead does, and he is the one who says radical things to people without hiding behind a pseudonym. It's like he has suddenly become Whitehead's rival and needs to one-up him for some reason. And then this rivalization process is taken to a new level when he says, you know, if you want to believe this comes from an outside source, that's fine. Of course, that's not true. And if you want to use the photographic plate metaphor, that's wrong. But here's one that you can use if you think you really need one. So suddenly Eisler has established himself as the dominant person in this correspondence, which I don't think he necessarily meant to do, but it sort of came out. This is after he said, oh, you know, I know I'm an egotist. I know that I offend people, but I don't think he knows what he's doing here. He even brings the two subjects together in a footnote, which we didn't record. The footnote says, a man called Fleece rediscovered what is already in the Bible. Man and woman, he made him, Adam. Them is a forgery. He's talking about Wilhelm Fleece here, who worked with Freud in his early years about primary bisexuality. This idea that the Hebrew Bible says that man was created with two natures, male and female, I don't know too much about. I must now mention a fundamental element in your self-characterization, which you may not like discussed, owing to the particular shyness in analyzing such matters which still prevails in England. Science is now convinced that all men are bisexual beings, and that male and female individuals are not absolutely different, as ignorance would have us believe, but polar types with an infinite variety of transitions between them. Nobody is absolutely normal in sexual matters, the word normal being itself a conventional word devoid of objective meaning. It is not a defect or a vice to have these or those particular feelings in this respect, only the fools and fanatics who make our laws and would have us believe that there are divine reasons for making such idiotic laws and social conventions think that they know better. After this necessary preliminary, you will not think it a want of respect or proper discretion if I call your attention to the fact that you have written an absolutely uncalled-for parenthesis in your sentence on page 2, quote, I have two overwhelming interests, men, not women, men and God, end quote. This sentence should normally run men and women, men and God, there being two possible contrasts in Latin wea and mulier, homo and deus. 
It is not normal that a kind and helpful, religious, altruistic person should have no interest in women, whose relation to God is the same as that of male men or he-men, as the Americans like to say. Your emphasis on virility in all you like and admire is potent in your letter. Sons doing a man's work, healthy, virile people, the daughter having given you a grandson, your business being agreeable to you because of the contact with men, women being of no interest to you, etc. Foreseeing the conclusion, which would automatically follow from this ever-recurrent emphasis, your subconscious forces you to emphasize the fact that you are happily married and a father of healthy children, which is, as every specialist knows, entirely consistent with a considerable lack of interest in women and an equally considerable preoccupation with our fellow men of our own sex. The most convincing feature of your letter pointing in that direction is the line added ex posteriori as an afterthought between two lines. Men come to me, I do not come to them? Why this protestation? Who would reproach you for seeking men and carrying to them your gifts? The subconscious, foreseeing an interpretation distasteful to your superconscious or conscious self, makes you protest against such an accusation, just as it made you write the illogical and uncalled-for parenthesis, quote, not women, end quote. I would not have dreamed of your thinking of women at all when you wrote men, men, and God. But the parenthesis forces this association of ideas upon your reader in the negation not women, for which your conscious self may have a very different explanation, so that you may be loath to admit my interference, cannot be interpreted otherwise according to the rules we apply in such cases. Your own figure, dark and small, the urchin, is the same as the one helping the apparition to disappear at the end. Could you draw sketches, however awkward and rough, to illustrate what you saw? You write, I tried to see what the Christ was looking at, but could see nothing? You have in this moment admitted to yourself that what Jesus was looking forward to, probably according to Mr. Mead's quotation from my book, but equally possibly you may have rejected the aims of your old conventional and traditional Christ for the more virile aims for which the historical Jesus died. His views and expectations are nothing to you. As a matter of fact, you seek the light and what he sought, according to what you read in Mead's report about my book, could not be but indifferent to you. Your ideal is superhuman in size, ten or twelve feet high. This curious insistence on measures being an obvious reaction against the three L's of the hue and cry pen portrait. The blue robe, sky color, is a conventional reminiscence from conventional Jesus pictures and statues. The figure disappearing at the knees, no hands, no feet visible, because even theologians will fight shy of such coarse anthropomorphism as hands and feet of God. He does not need them, therefore their absence is not noticed by you. God being a spirit, everything is concentrated in the face. Then you say the face was perfectly manly, strong, this being your ideal of the master man as explained before. The description of the face is exactly like that given in the spurious, apocryphal, Christian, so-called lynchless letter, which is, as your own vision, a wish-reaction against the true description. You may or may not have read this once very popular text. If you have not known it, the visionary reaction becomes all the more typic. This is absolutely clear. You realize in your vision that the old conventional ideal of the Christ, God incarnated in man, the ideal man, etc., the beautiful strong man with the fullness of life in him and the blue heaven robe, transformed into light with all the lightning flashes in it, that in all this there is no heart and no human feeling. It is a wooden idol which collapses through the reaction brought about by contact with the historical reality of the real Jesus. You see it form again. But back to me, leaving you forever growing less and less. It will always reappear, but mean less and less to you. It has grown so weak in parting from you that it has to be helped by you, that is, the urchin-like small dark figure, if the conventional figure is to live on, it cannot help you any more. You will have to help it disappear quietly through the glass partition chambers, return where it came from, that is, through the consciences of the fourteen who first saw it, James, the twelve apostles, and Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. You are now through with Christianity. You have become a true Unitarian, truly monotheistic worshipper of the only light there is. You say on page 7, quote, Him I adore, him I worship, and none else, end quote. This is all I have to tell you. 
In return, I should like to have A, typed copies of my letters, and B, a photograph of you, the latest you have, an amateur snapshot if possible, without hat. Very sincerely yours, Robert Eisler. Now about this whole business about Eisler wanting a picture of Whitehead without a hat, I'll say a few things. First, I think this is a strange request, and he did in fact publish a picture of Whitehead in the article he eventually published about this case. The twist to the story is, when Eisler's widow, Lily, dropped off all of his papers at the Varberg Institute after his death, they found these two pictures of Whitehead in the correspondence, and they assumed that these were pictures of Robert Eisler himself. So when I requested from them some years back a picture of Robert Eisler, because I'd been reading about him for so long and never knew what he looked like, they sent me this picture of Whitehead. And I remember thinking, you know, I read so much about how he looked really Jewish and he couldn't disguise how Jewish he was, that this picture is pretty goyish looking. And that's because it was not a picture of Robert Eisler. It was a picture of Robert Whitehead. So of the two Roberts, we had a confusion after both of their deaths where the patient was mistaken for the doctor. I guess that's some kind of a very literal transference, or maybe it's a countertransference. Anyway, before we get to Whitehead's response to the psychoanalysis, let's go back to the Marsha Hewitt conversation. This is the thing about Eisler that I must say I, 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 I like very much. Eisler doesn't pull any punches. I mean, he cuts to the chase, right? And so he gets this letter from, you know, Whitehead, and Eisler says, you know what? This is what I think is going on with you, man. I think you've got some repressed kind of sexual kind of, you know, desires here, and why don't we just put them out on the table? This is where psychoanalysis gets into trouble, and it's, not, and it's based on a misunderstanding. So what, what Eisler's doing, what a reduction. It's just a reduction. Everything's about sex, right? It's just a reduction. And it's much more complicated than that. It's much more sophisticated than that, what Eisler is pointing out and what Freud tried to point out. But it's very hard to grasp the subtlety and the complexity of that argument and much easier to say, oh, well, you're just, you're just reducing it all to sex and you're, you're draining it of its spirituality and you're draining it of its beauty and you're draining it of its transcendent, you know, etc. That's partly what upsets Whitehead, you know, that here's Whitehead being sort of confronted by this sort of quote-unquote dirty sex-obsessed Jew and he's trying to say, no, 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 you don't know enough about, you don't know what this was. This is what I saw. This is who I am. I don't like women. <laughs> you know, right, yeah. I, 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 like, I like the virile. I like the clear-eyed. I mean, you can just see, you know, the Nazi stereotype, you know, marching into, you know, marching into Austria, right? I mean, the, I mean, you know, you do know, by the way, right, that Hugo Boss was the designer of the SS uniforms? Yeah, I didn't know that. It's important because these guys were, they were fashion plates, right? Yeah. Men come to me. He comes into contact with healthy, virile people. That's his family. Brings him into contact with men. Men come to me. He says men come to me twice in like one sentence. So men, so men come to me to my office. Men come to me. And I think, I think Eisler sees it. He sees it. He nails them. What I like about his analysis, too, is that he sort of tries to be somewhat reassuring. He says, you know, this is completely normal. He said, this is, there is no normal sexuality. There is only this continuum, is, and everyone has, is bisexual, and so this is nothing to worry about, but this is what is happening. And then he takes it into this art historical analysis of Jesus and the feminine Jesus, which is, is a whole fascinating story, these, these, um, this kitsch, religious kitsch stuff, which I guess has already kicked mm -hmm. off by this time, but, mm -hmm. but Holman Hunt's painting, mm -hmm. which, is, which is a lot about... So he seems to, uh, to, I mean, he's thinking about the feminine Jesus and uh, this sort of, where's the directionality of attraction or identification here? It's, it's, it's not it's just sex for him, but it's rather, it, there's, there's a complex of ideas surrounding the figure of Jesus, which he's always been fascinated by, always been fascinated by the translation of the Gospels and the editing of the Gospels to present a particular mm -hmm. picture of Jesus. And, and mm -hmm. I mean, art history is this, first love, really, or his first thing that he always does his whole life. Everything he does kind of picks up these same threads, even if I can't see where they have anything to do with what he's been asked or what he's encountered. It always is coming back to these art historical, cosmological, 
and archetypal analyses. And he's always trying to sell his stuff there. Everybody says, you know, if you quote this letter, you get the book for two-thirds off the yeah. listed price. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. That's funny. But he does a very close textual analysis. I mean, clinically, I would not work this way. I would not say to a patient what, you know, Eisler slams, you know, Whitehead with. You, you don't want the person jumping out of a window. But what he, he's doing a very close analysis of uh, Whitehead's own words He's uncovering the unconscious fantasies and sexual repressed or hidden or dissociated, you could say, or disavowed sexual longings that's very, very clear in, uh, in, uh, in Whitehead. And, you know, it's interesting. Whitehead talks about, um, he says, I, I, can't, I can't find exactly where it was, but he says something about feeling alive or alive, an enlivened uh, feeling when he's uh, – Talking oh, yeah. about people, you know, enlivenness. In um in the sections in uh the varieties of religious experience uh, where James um reproduces all these uh reports on mystical experience. This is a common theme. Um they're mostly men and uh it's not Jesus they experience, but when they when they, you know, have this mystical, you know, unio mystica kind of uh experience they all talk about feeling enlivened, more alive, right? Very alive. All their senses are, are heightened. And that's another part of what I mean by a kind of an eroticism there. That's not just, it's not just, it's not like just general sexuality, but it's a feeling of being enlivened. And it's very much in the body, you know. This one guy um, talks about, you know, he just couldn't bear to go to church with his wife and kids one day. This guy named Trevor couldn't bear to go to church with them. It would have been like spiritual suicide for him. So he takes the pooch and goes for a walk. And, you know, and then he gets this blaze, this kind of, you know, things where, where, where light is very strong. And interestingly, I don't know if you know Barbara Ehrenreich's work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But she, she wrote something a few years ago when she talks about an experience that she had also blazing light, fire, the world's on fire, you know, the heat, the light, the fire. So there's something about, you know, people yearning, desiring to be more alive, you know, to be, to feel more because there's been a deadening in their lives. They've been kind of deadened where it's depression or, and I think with Whitehead, you know, thinking psychoanalytically, he's a happily married man who doesn't want anything to do with women, and men keep coming to him. I mean, you know, uh, and then this this image of Jesus and this, you know, this this vir- and the virility and all that stuff. So there's all those kinds of pieces at work. So it's not just a, it's not just a sexuality. It's you know, you know, Freud talked about eros, right? This feeling of life, of unity, of merging, of going out in the world, of making connections. In his response to Eisler's psychoanalysis, Whitehead is still really respectful and even obsequious towards Eisler. You can tell that he really likes being paid attention to and having his ideas about his spiritual gifts and enlightened state being taken seriously and analyzed. It's gratifying for him. But he also pushes back against Eisler's sexual interpretation, which is understandable and something that Eisler was more or less predicting he would do. The letter itself was written on the 26th and the 30th of January. It's extremely long and rambling, quotes scripture, quotes poetry, has an appendix on visions and an appendix on women. Reading the whole letter would take an entire episode. So rather than read the whole thing, here are some highlights of the letter that really reflect, I think, how Whitehead sees himself and how he wants Eisler to read his visions. I thank you for your letter of 20th January. I am scarce equal to such things. I am no scholar. I am not even the literary person you dream me to be. But my way of life has made me keenly observant of mental processes and a seeker for the cause of things. I do not know the first rule of psychoanalysis, nor could I govern my thought in the way that you appear to govern yours. Yet I am not ignorant of mental processes, nor of the way of using them. I woke up from sleep this week with the settled idea that the dream belongs to you, not to me. And the key to it was at number 14, and that you held the key. Strange. But as you know, from the beginning I felt that there was something anomalous in the Christ appearing to me. Also, there was something anomalous in my writing to you. 
I have reread the article in the quest. I cannot tell what train of thought led me to write you. Your letter is crammed full of interest. Your deductions are wonderful, but all the same, pardon my saying so, there are errors in it. Not because the deductions are incorrectly made, but because the premises, the essential data, are not fully established. Now concerning women. I know when I wrote the parentheses, not women, that I should open up the floodgates. Yet at the time, I did not see how to express more concisely the idea I had in mind. I have not the least desire to teach women. That is not my job. It is men, however, that I am interested in. I understand them pretty well, for I have lived their life, failed as they have failed, played the fool as they have, suffered many things as they have, the difference being principally in the occasion or the degree. You say that woman is as much to God as man is. I feel inclined to think that may be so, but I am not well informed on the subject. At any rate, I am not God. What then is a woman to me? A very delightful person when she fulfills her simple natural function of mother, mother of sons, mother of daughters who shall be mothers of sons. You say, no doubt, why this insistence on the masculine? It is my natural trend, but there my consciousness tends to dwell in the light, in God. To me, what this episode is about, and I mean both the episode of Eisler's Life and the episode of the podcast, is how difficult it is to communicate. We communicate in ways that are garbled, easily misconstrued, and often very indirect. We started out with the classicist Gilbert Murray communicating to Eisler that he should go to Paris and take this diplomatic position. We saw Eisler failing to communicate with the proper authorities in Austria and therefore getting himself into a kind of a limbo in Paris. We saw Eisler discovering what he thought was an authentic communication from Josephus that had come down through the centuries to him, untouched by the Christian censors who were always distorting the history of his people. And then we saw, at least in the minds of his followers, Jesus himself communicating indirectly with Eisler by revealing himself on earth in order to dispel any notion that he looked like Eisler said he looked. It all comes together in Whitehead's dream, where it's revealed that Whitehead's vision had been meant for Eisler all along and sent to someone else so that they could communicate it with him and he could interpret it. And this is where I wound up in my conversation with Marsha Hewitt. You know, dreams, I think when I think about dreams, I think about dreams as communications, you know, of parts of the self to the self. And we can never explain them completely. So another possibility is him trying to connect with some hidden aspect of himself that is a little bit more accessible in the dream. But it's hard to know. I mean, it's not uncommon for people to solve problems in dreams. There's been a lot of development in psychoanalysis since Freud. But dreaming does emotional work, right? I mean, you could say we're dreaming all the time. It's not just confined to nighttime. Right now, you and I, right? We're talking about these two men, long dead, Um, We only know them, well, you know them through research, and I know them through you, uh, what you have said to me, and we're talking about them and wondering about them. We're dreaming them into existence, right? We're, we're, We're engaged right now in a conjuring exercise, you and I, as we dream Eisler and dream Whitehead into being, right? Because they're very alive for us right now. We're dreaming together because there's work that we're doing, that you're doing much more than me, but I'm sort of here, you know, as a as a helper, I suppose, dreaming together to try to figure out something that's basically a, an enigma. You know, Freud talked about the dreams navel. Um, there's a, a point you come to, you just don't know. You just you can't go any farther. You you just simply can't. Uh, you'll never know, right? That's it for this episode. I'd like to thank my guest, Marcia Hewitt. Please join us next week when we look at the darkest period in Eisler's life, beginning with his arrest and confinement in Dachau and Buchenwald. In this week's episode, the voice of Robert Eisler has been provided by Logan Crum, with additional voices by Logan Marshall and Brian Evans. Throughout the podcast, I have received assistance with engineering, recording, and editing from March Wasileski and Logan Marshall. The music is Shibboleth Beseda, recorded by Ayakum Shapira and his Israeli orchestra. Partial funding has been provided by the Ohio University Humanities Research Fund and the Ohio University Honors Tutorial College Internship Program. Special thanks also go to the Varberg Institute at the School of Advanced Study and the University of London. (laughs) 
Ah! Uh-huh. 